Good morning. Happy Sunday. God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the blessings in our lives. Especially this blessing of life. Get it to us for a reason and for a purpose. So we call upon your understanding and your wisdom in all things. Thank you for this time of fellowship we have with one another, encouraging one another in the truth of your sovereignty and strength over all things. You are our God and you are our King. And we offer up a sacrifice of worship and praise through music to you now. Amen.
Good morning, everybody. It's the last week before school starts up again. <laughs> that didn't sound like a kid's voice saying woohoo out there. I don't know what that was. Well, we want to thank you all for being here today and joining us in worship. We're going to continue on here in just a few minutes, but let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have given us this day as you give us each and every single day as a gift from you. We'd just like to thank you as we lift up our voices in praise. Just come down over this room and fill it with your power and with your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kids, you can go on off to Kids Church. Adults, you can stay here and worship.
Amen. Thank you, worship team. Man, we are so blessed with incredible people to lead us in worship, aren't we? Uh, Callie, who led that last song, she is moving to Anchorage on Thursday to go to UAA. So we send our prayers with her. But it's been an awesome time for us to just pour into her and worship her, with her as she's been here, part of Young and Company, part of our church. So we're blessed with every person that comes up on stage and pours out their heart for the sake of God's glory. Um, good morning, Friends Church. How are, how are all of you? Good. Well, I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't tired. It has been a long week. Having four boys is exhausting, but it's good. Um, but, um, man, I've been wrestling through this word this week. It's something that has been on my heart for probably over a month at least. I mean, we even talked about it at camp. So, you know, when you talk about something and you wrestle with something, you come to it and you're like, it's going to be okay. I'm at least going to be able to flush out an outline and, and you know, get some cohesive thoughts because I've been thinking about it so much. And I think that gets in the way sometimes, uh, with preaching is because we, we try to get up here instead of just speaking from God's spirit. So last night at 11, I just decided I'd go to sleep and we'll see what God wants to say this morning. So, um, on that note, we need some prayer big time. <laughs> so let's pray. And Mauricio is up here with the offering. So we'll take the offering as we do. Father, we just thank you for who you are. Lord, that your word promises that in our weakness, that your strength is perfected. It doesn't rely on us, God. It only relies on you, which is so beautiful because you are always faithful. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you would be glorified. Lord, that you would be revealed for the holy God you are in this place. Lord, despite my understandings and my thought process and everything, Lord, I pray that you would just clearly be heard. God, we thank you that this church does not rely on a man, but we put all of our strength and all of our hope and all of our trust in our King. Lord, and and so this morning we give to you, we just focus on you, God, and we thank you for every person that pours out their hearts, their lives, their time, their money for the sake of this body, this fellowship that you brought together. God, I pray that as people give this morning that it would just be further for the benefit of your kingdom, God, that it would go farther than this place, that it would reach this valley, reach this world, and above all else, Lord, that as we give, you would just be blessed, God, that you would be, uh, that you would be just glorified as we pour out to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I have a couple announcements before I start getting all... Does everybody hear that? I'm just wondering if that's me. We, I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, this coming Saturday is a kickoff day for our community outreach. So we're going to be doing a community outreach event on Labor Day weekend. Um, but this Saturday we're doing a kickoff for it. And uh, what we're going to be doing is a rummage sale to raise money for that Labor Day weekend community outreach event. And during that outreach. I think we're going to be meeting in the park across the street on South Cushman. 
and just inviting the community to come in, homeless to come in, people to come in to get some food. We're going to be uh, supplying some clothes, uh, just raising funds and trying to bring all of our churches together for the sake of that cause. We've got a hold of the churches in the community and asked that they would partner with us. I actually designed a t-shirt last week that says, We the Church, and we're printing it right now. So that's really cool. Um, and so that's going to be available for the Labor Day weekend, too, so we can all just go together and look like a total mafia. And uh, I knew you would like that, Mauricio. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're going to be uh, giving free food and goodie bags, and we need a lot of volunteers to run this event. So if you can help out, if you're excited about it, Kayla, who's on staff, is going to be running that. You can talk to her, call the office, tell her that you're interested in the uh, community day, but also we still need stuff for the rummage sale if you guys haven't s- seen that already, and come out on Saturday, because all the proceeds are going to be going straight to what we want to do for uh, pouring into our community, so that is one of the announcements. The other one being is that Young and Company is going to be kicking off at the end of this month, and we're completely changing things up when it comes to the way we're structuring youth group in our church, mostly because of the conviction that God has put on my heart to make it more biblical. Because I think a lot of times we sell out to the secular models and say, this is what youth group is because this is what everybody does. And what I want to do is I want to say, well, what does God say is good for our kids? And what is the structure in which the Bible gives us? And that, I feel, is built more in community fellowships, uh, smaller groups that are going to be spread out among the city, which is going to need some buy-in from the parents. So next Sunday... Uh, we're asking every parent that's involved in Young and Company, if you have a kid that's coming from middle school, sixth grade up to a senior, I'm going to be sharing my vision after the service. Um, if you want to just come and hear it too, you're more than welcome to. It's going to be in one of the classrooms. Next Sunday, we're going to have lunch. Uh, we're going to have all of our leaders there for you parents to meet. And I'll just be able to cast vision and answer any questions you might have. So put it on your schedule if you have a kid that's going to be coming this year because we are dissolving everything we've done and rebuilding it from the ground up. So it's a big change, but it's good. I always, um, one of the things I love to do is not get so comfortable with uh, our structures that we just let it be, you know, what moves us. It's like we always need to be going back to what does the Bible say? What does the Word say? Where does growth happen? And look at how can we move those things. And if that means dissolving a whole structure... To make it happen, let it be so, because God is worth it. So, And our kids are absolutely worth it. So please, next week, um, if you want to hear our heart for what we're going to be doing, uh, come to the lunch. So today, if you have your Bible with you this morning, Danny, can we turn on these lights right here so that people can read uh, the Word? If you have your Bible here, um, open up to Acts 17, if you would. We're going to be looking at Acts 17 today. Um, When I was thinking about it this week of where I wanted to found this conversation, I was going through the Word, and this is the one that just struck me as such a picture of how it relates to our culture today. Uh, In Acts 17, Paul is on his second mission trip uh, through uh, the land, and this is birthed out of what... A lot of people call the vision that he was given. Um, I think it, let me actually get to that really quick. In um, 
the Macedonia call that's in Acts 16. And so he's going out and he's preaching the word. And what he's doing at this time is he's going to synagogues and he's proclaiming to the Jews the truth of the gospel. And there's a lot of growth that we see happening. When we look at Matthew 16, he's meeting up with Silas and they end up going to prison at one point because he cast out a demon and people didn't like that. And when he's in prison, uh, the guard he witnesses to because there was an earthquake and all the shackles came off and the guard comes in and he thinks he's going to, he says he's going to kill himself because he thought everybody went free and Paul's like, we're still in here. So the guard actually brings him to his house and he asks him about the Lord and he gets saved. And I mean, there's just so much stuff that's happening. And then Paul and Silas and Timothy go to uh, uh, Thessalonica, which is a hard word to say, um, uh, where Paul wrote the letter to uh, the Thessalonians. And there they're meeting in the synagogues and they're talking to the Jewish people. And there's something that happened there because the Jews, in verse 5 of chapter 17, it says, They were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So this is a place where Paul was preaching the gospel, the truth of the word, saying, The law is dead. Circumcision doesn't matter. You need to repent and come to Christ. And the word that's used here in verse 5 is not anger, it's jealousy, which we're going to be looking at a little bit later, but I want you to just keep that in your mind. But what happened is a mob came into an uproar to the point where Jason is in prison for a little bit, and the people in Thessalonica say to Paul, you need to go. So they send him and Silas and Timothy to a place called Berea, and it's a smaller community, and in Berea, they're met with a lot more welcoming Jews there. Um, it says that when they went to the synagogues, that the Jews were more noble, in verse 11 of 17, uh, than those in Thessal- Thessalonica. I'm too tired to say that word. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see these things were so. And so in Berea, they're having all of this good times, and it's not that the Bereans came in an uproar against them, but it was that the Jews from the last city heard that they were there, so they said, we're going to go to Berea now, and we're going to cause some ruckus. So what happens is that these people from Thessalonica go to Berea, and they try and cause an uproar again. Um, And it says in verse 14 that then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Danny, what is that? All right, good to know. Maybe we could do a new body pack or something? All right. It's like the wind of heaven. I'm for it. So all of that to say is Paul was preaching to the Jews and they were absolutely offended. And the offense of the Jews towards the gospel was pushed in such a way where he meant to be in Thessalonica, but he got pushed to Berea. And then in verse 16... The Bereans sent him on a ship over the sea to a place called Athens. And this is where we're going to be in today. Now this uh, section of scripture is interesting because what we've seen in previous scriptures in the book of Acts is Paul having communication with the Jews. We've seen uh, a sermon of his, if you read through the book of Acts, that is... uh, 
that is uh, centered around what the Jews believe and the rebuttal that the cross says to the Jewish nation. But here we get the first account of Paul talking specifically to Gentiles. And not only Gentiles, but he's in Athens. In Athens. I don't know if you guys know anything about Athens, but it's a pretty big deal back in the day. I mean, when Paul comes to Athens in chapter 17, verse 16, this is 49 AD. 49 AD. So this is five years before Nero was in, uh, in reign, uh, was reigning empire, emperor in Rome. But we're really close to that same period. It's 15 years before Rome burned, like we talked about a few weeks ago, okay? Just to give you a grasp of where we're at here. And although Athens had lost its uh, political eminence it once had in the earlier days, it still continued to represent the highest level of culture attained in classical antiquity. The sculptures, the literature, the, the culture attained in Athens, seen in Athens in the 5th and 4th century B.C., um, have indeed never, it's never been surpassed. Nothing has touched Athens to this day when it comes to the culture and the art and the architecture and the philosophy and medicine. Obviously, we've grown a lot of medicine, but just the beginnings of it. We're going to do a switch. Okay, heaven is still with us, I promise. Just a little bit quieter. Thank you, Danny. All right, <laughs> I mean, this was the uh, place where Herodotus, the father of history, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, uh, so- Socrates, the father of philosophy, along with the works of Plato, Aristotle, Zeno. I mean, these men, these great men that all of us still know today, they're from Athens. Okay? In all fields, Athens retained unchallenged prestige, so much so that when Rome eventually took over Athens in its uh, conquest for world domination, which it did so well, in uh, 197 BC, Rome takes over Athens, but they had so much respect for the culture and the wisdom and the prestige that they gave them their own city. They were a free alliance to the empire in Rome. They were a part of Rome but they stayed their own because nobody wanted to mess with Athens. It was the height of human wisdom, the epitome of wisdom and intellect and beauty and architecture. And I mean, everybody knew it. If you wanted to go somewhere for tourism back in the day, you would go to Athens. It was absolutely mind-boggling. The architecture, the beautiful temples. I mean, we have, you know, the... uh, Acropolis, the Parthenon, these things that still to this day people go and they look at and they're like, how did they make this? I've always wanted to go there and look at, you know, some of the sculptures. I mean, Pericles, the sculptures of the age of Pericles were there. Um, And just the architecture and stuff and just marvel at the art, right? I mean, what a beautiful thing to see, the artistry of that place. But when Paul goes there... In 49 BC, these temples, this architecture, all of this stuff that was being made was not just art. It wasn't just art at all. And in fact, where we begin here, Paul doesn't mention the beauty of the architect or its rich history. He's consumed with one thing. 
the pervasive idolatry throughout. Every building in the city and every place that Paul turns has a representation of some god or goddess. One ancient writer uh, tells us that at one time in Athens, around this time in the first century, there was upwards of 30,000 known gods that had their own idols raised in Athens. Uh, Petronius, one of the ancient historians, once said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. The idol was, the city was full of idols. The worship of other gods that were not gods at all. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that all worship that goes out to images made of men are actually demons. And Paul's heart began to burn with holy anger. And this is where we start in verse 16, if you read with me. This is in your outline as well. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now, remember, the only reason Paul is here is because he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. We got on the boat. He got to Athens. His plan was not to do ministry here. He was as, I mean, as much as the word would allow, he was a tourist that was just going about the city looking at the sights. And the plan was is that Silas and Timothy were going to meet him there and then they were going to go into Corinth because Paul always preached at the places where it had the highest volume of people so that it would trickle quickly. And Corinth at this time was a political, where Athens was the height of wisdom, Corinth was the height of politics. So they were going to be going to Corinth. But it says, while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw the city was full of idols. Now that word provoked um, is a word that literally means holy anger. And it's not something that just happens like immediately because it's in the passive tense. It's something that is a continual stirring that's just building in this fire. In his soul, every single time he turned a corner and he saw something that was not God being glorified, but a statue, it just continued to burn and to burn and to burn. He was consumed. This man was consumed with zeal for his king. If it wasn't enough to see the testimony of him being kicked out of countless places and prisons and beat, now he was in a city that stood against everything he stood for. And I can imagine that he had the words of Isaiah 42 eight going through his head where the Lord declared, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And when he saw idols everywhere, when he saw God not being glorified, he could not stay silent. And that's what we're gonna see in this passage. And I think... The reason he couldn't stay silent was twofold. One of them, obviously, we just said, that he, he was consumed with the zeal for his king, and God was not being glorified in this place. But also, as we're going to see, and I really want to highlight this, is that Paul, he looked at the height of men's splendor and wisdom exalted in Athens, which is 30,000 idols, and the works of Socrates, and the philosophy, the greatest minds that had ever lived. And he knew the best man had achieved nothing but brokenness. Everything that that city stood for was empty. And so Paul burned for the city. So let's read on for a second. 
So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Now I want you to remember that Paul had not planned to come to Athens. And when I was thinking about this passage last night, this thought hit me. Have any of you gone on vacation before? Isn't it awesome? (laughs) But what is our thought process when we go on vacation, when you go somewhere like that? Isn't it that it's centered around you? Because you have all the stress of the year, and I just got this one week where I can just focus on myself and focus on what I want to do and focus on all these things that I want to do. And if the food's bad, I'm angry because I came all the way over to here and... You're not treating me right, or if our hotel sucks. I mean, it's just this list that's formed around my desires, everything that I deserve, to say bluntly. When I was looking at this picture, I mean, I want us to grasp this here, because Paul did not plan to come to Athens. The only reason he was there was to meet his friends. So in every way, Paul was on vacation. In every way, he was just... There, not even as Paul the great apostle, as we're going to see in a second, but just Paul the man. And he's just walking the city and nobody knows him in Athens. And he's looking about all the art and all the marvelous things and the architects. And the one thing that stands out to him is not what he wants to do, but where God isn't being proclaimed. His whole being burned for one thing, and that was the glory of God. He wasn't concerned with meals or seeing the sights or all of these things. When Paul got there and he rested and he started going around waiting for his friends, the one thing that comes to his mind is God is not here. And it burned him. And J.C. Ryle puts this incredibly well, and I think this centers on Paul's heart incredibly well. This is in your outline. It says, A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, wholehearted, fervent in the spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up by one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man, or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise, or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame, or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor, or whether he gets shame. For all of this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God, to advance God's glory. If he is consumed to the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp. He is made to burn, and if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God has appointed him to do. And Paul burned for the city. 
What a conviction. Because how many of us are, get so content with idols around our lives? Obviously, we don't live in Athens. But to say that we don't have as much idols as they did back then, and even much more so today, would be a complete lie. And we know it. Our idolatry is in the form of carved wood or gold or silver anymore. But what is it? We we idolize sex and possession and money and fame and people to the point where we lift them above God. And this is what our culture is doing today. We talked about this at the beginning. There is a tension between the kingdom and culture. And where do we stand in it? Does it burn us with zeal for God when we see the world lost in their own ways? Or are we just content because they're just going to do what they're going to do and I'm just going to do what I'm going to do? Do we burn for the zeal of God? Are we fully in? These are some questions we're going to be looking at today. How does Paul respond in the midst of Athens? One thing I want us to know before we even look at his address is uh, that Paul was not known in Athens. He wasn't brought to the council here, to the Areopagus, because he was Paul the great apostle. And we know this because in verse 18, when he's talking to the philosophers of the day, who were the Stoics and the Epicureans, they call him a babbler, which in the Greek literally means one who picks up seeds. So metaphorically, they look at Paul, they have no idea who he is, and they say this to him, that he's a person who obtains scraps of information from other people, and um, he's retained them for his own, um, and they were accusing him of ignorant plagiarism, as if Paul had heard just high movements of philosophy, and he grabbed one from Socrates, and he grabbed one from this guy, and one from this guy, and he brought them all together, and he says, I have something to present. And they would call that a babbler. You're nothing. You don't have philosophy. You don't have anything. They had no respect for this man. He was a religious charlatan. Or, as one historian put it, a third-party journalist. They absolutely thought themselves superior to him in every way because he was telling a message. But because he was telling a message they never heard before, they became curious Because as Luke notes, which is, it's just, it's, to me, it's just Luke talking as Luke. I can just hear him saying this. So much of the word is just, you know, it's men writing the words of God and they stay like just so careful and concise, which is obvious because it's God's revelation. But I hear Luke in this, in verse uh, 21, where he says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would just spend their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's like he's just saying, this place is ridiculous. Like all they live for is new things and who has the newest philosophy so I can let go of mine. They were window shoppers. Nobody wanted to commit to a truth in Athens. They just wanted to know all of them. And when they got bored of one, they'd pick up another one. 
So they said, will you come and tell us? Because we've never heard these things. And so Paul, this is the picture we have here. Paul is standing in front of the height of human wisdom and culture of the day. And he's given a chance to address the greatest minds of that day. And the way that he starts his address is absolutely brilliant and crucial for us to grasp. Because he, again, he's talking to the philosophical minds of Athens here. This is the peak of human wisdom. And let's read what he says. Verse 22, he says, Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said to them, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription that says, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you now. Paul immediately turns to a point of reference. And what a picture it is for us today to always get into the world of the person that we're proclaiming the gospel to. He had a footing here. He didn't just stand third party and go to them and say, I'm just going to speak to you in words that you don't understand. He went into their world and he looked around and he said, God, give me something that will lend me their ears. And so he turns to a point of reference, which was well known to his audience, and that gave him a foothold. Somewhere in the city there was an altar dedicated to an unknown God. And to this altar, Paul made reference. An altar was just that, just so you guys know. An altar is not an idol. An idol of a god required an identification of that god. You had to know the characteristics. You needed to know the attributes. And if one was going to make an image of it. So when we say an altar, we just mean a pedestal with nothing on it. So Paul saying this is not desecrating the name of God at all. But it's showing the very ignorance of human wisdom. Because literally what he's he's doing is he's starting like this. He tells this group that the god in whom he is speaking of, is the God who is unknown to them. Who amidst their 30,000 gods, they still realize they have never come to grasp. So they just put it there just in case. And in all of their wisdom and their philosophy and their greatness, he showed the very wide hole, which was ignorance of men. And this word in the ESV, it says, uh, this God in which you do not know... But another translation says, this God in which you are ignorant to. Ignorant to. Man, that must have stung. But they, they, they were willing to hear because truly they knew they didn't understand this. So despite their rich culture, their history, their intelligence, and their educations, they were ignorant to the one thing that mattered most. And this was where Paul brings the truth of God to the wisdom of the world. And this is what he says, standing among them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and the earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for the dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but some others said, we will hear you again on this. So I, I want to just, just highlight a couple things, what Paul just did. Because again, where the Jews' offense was against power, that's why they said in, in Acts 17.5 that they were jealous when Paul was speaking the gospel. Why? Because he was ripping away their power. They had no control anymore under the law. Nobody had to submit to them. They had to submit to Christ. And all of the power the Jews had needed to be humbled to the point of realizing they needed to repent and turn their ways to Jesus. That was the offense to the Jews. Now Paul looks at the Greeks and he says something different. You live in the height of wisdom and understanding. And I tell you that you know nothing. I mean, how offended can you, how offensive can you be? I highlighted some things that just stuck out to me in this passage that Paul says, going through, let's just read it again. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He is the creator of the universe. This one God, not Zeus, not your philosophies, not the fire in which the Stoics believed fire made the earth and air came from fire and air made water and all the, everything just lives within itself and the whole entire universe is a beating organism that has atoms and it's just all hippie-ish. That's what they believed. And, and Paul says, no, 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 Stoics. No, God made the earth. He created the earth. And not only did he create the earth, but he doesn't live in temples built by man. You have your temple to Athena. You have your temple to Zeus. You have all of these places in your market selling these wooden idols. And this is nothing. This God cannot be seen in the sculptures of men. You, you bring nothing to this God in this. He was, tearing, he was tearing Athens apart. The very constructs of them. And he goes on. He gives all mankind life and breath and everything. God alone, this God, this one God is the sustainer of all life. He sustains everything. You don't. He does. The Epicureans thought uh, that they lived for the height of pleasure. And life was just all about controlling everything in your world and bringing it to the culmination of you just controlled your joy. You just controlled everything. 
The Stoics believed that they could control the balance between sadness and joy, so they never really uh, blended the two together. They just sort of stayed middle, so they didn't even want to feel anything. They were all about control. Neither of them believed there was a hell. Neither of them believed there was retribution. Neither of them believed that there was a God who even held them accountable at all. And Paul is saying, this God, he sustains life. You don't. And he is the ruler of the nations. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries for their dwelling place. He is the ruler of all nations, of all people groups. This word here, nations, is the same exact word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28 when he says, go out into all the world, into all the nations, and preach the word. He is the savior to the lost. That they should see God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. He is crying. Wisdom is crying in the streets. Listen. You need a savior. If your 30 gods haven't shown you that already, Athens, what you've been searching for is the very thing you're ignorant of. But he is a savior and you are lost. He is a king over all of us. Where he says, in him we live and move and we have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he is our father. But then he goes further. Being then God's offspring, we not ought to think of this divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of men. For the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has authority over your life. And he commands you. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Because God is king. He is king over all of us. And he is judge over the world. Because he has fixed a time on the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Now consider this. This is where I want to go this morning. Because the whole reason that Paul goes to Athens is because the Jews were mad. And they were offended because of the gospel. So he gets on a boat, and he goes across the sea, and he goes to a land of Greeks. And what does he do there? He wells up with holy anger. And he looks at the wisdom and everything they've built. And where he said to the Jews, your power means nothing. He says to the Greeks, your wisdom is absolutely ignorant. How offensive is this? See, this is the thing that I want us to grasp this morning is the gospel is offensive. And it's meant to be. Because it requires your life. There is a holy God 
who created the universe. He is the sustainer of life and the ruler of all the nations. He is a savior of the lost, yes, but he is king and he will judge us. And we are fallen in our sin. In Romans 3, it says, no one is righteous, not one. No one seeks God, not a single person. We are condemned in sin away from this God. Condemned in our sin. That's offensive. Because in our fallen state, the very thing we're centered on is self, is it not? This idea of, I want to make my name great, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Let us make our name great. Let us succeed. Let us do all of these things. Let us build these philosophies and these temples and all of this stuff. Or in Judaism, let us build a structure and religion and this power and everything. And the cross comes and it says, it is, it is nothing. Your power needs to become weakness. Your wisdom needs to become foolishness. And it is offensive. And I think the reason why there's so much conflict in the church today about these issues that have to do with God's glory, not civil matters, God's glory. The sanctity of marriage is not about men. It's about the glory of God being revealed in this world. Abortion is not a political matter. It's about God's glory being revealed in that all life is precious and meaningful. All creation has been given breath to reveal the image of its creator. And what boggles my mind is we live in this day where Christians will look at the gospel, so they say, and say, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord. And they walk out the door of church and they say, I'm offended by what the Bible says. I'm offended that homosexuality is a sin. Do you realize what the Bible says? It says that you are completely fallen in your thinking, not only in your understanding of what is evil, but in your understanding of what is good. And the reason we come to Christ is because we are not good enough to save. We change lives with Him. It says in the Old Testament that our hearts are so wicked... They cannot be fixed. So God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to give you a new spirit. But to acquire those things, Jesus says, you must pick up your cross daily and die. Everything you are. So that he can live through us. And I think the things we struggle with in this world when it comes to these issues is that we we say that we love God. We say that we love redemption. And yet we don't even really know what the gospel says to us. Because it doesn't just say God is love, so therefore do whatever you want, and in the end you're going to go to heaven. It says God is just. And the question the Bible frames is not how can a good God love, or how can a loving God send good people to hell? It's how can a just God not condemn us to hell? And the answer is the cross. We have demolished the beauty of the cross because we have lowered it to this place where it's not really that important. For the Bible says, no, you absolutely need Christ because you are condemned in your sin. So this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, 
In verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now I want you to think of the Jews in Acts 17 who rised up in jealousy, and I want you to think of the Greeks who rose up in absolute just, I'm sure they were just in awe of the fact that Paul just stood in front of Athens and says, everything you've built means nothing and you're ignorant. I want you to think of those two things because this is exactly what Paul says. Where is the one that is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I want you to catch this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through human understanding. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. A stumbling block for the Jews. Why? Because to say a crucified Messiah is like to say... I'm going to go and fry ice. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. Crucifixion shows weakness, shows just the height of depravity. Messiah shows strength, shows authority, shows kingship. The Jews couldn't wrestle with that. Why? Because in order to come to this one, you want me to let go of all my power? I wanted one that was going to come and reign and take authority over, and we were just going to be ushered into this great kingdom where we're all in control. And he says, no, in order for you to come to this king, you must lower yourself to weakness. And to the Gentiles, he says, there is nothing in yourself that you can understand to grasp the reality of this God. There is such a movement in this culture today where people love to go around and say, well, I know who God is. Well, how? Because, you know, I just know it's in here. And we conjure up these emotions and, and these ideas of who we believe God is. And then we project them up and say, because of how I feel, this is who you are. But the gospel flips it on end and it says, no, 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 you cannot find me in your wisdom. In fact, you have to come into foolishness to know me. Which means you have to come outside of yourself. And I declare who I am to you. And you receive the revelation of that truth. If you try to reason, rationalize the cross... You disprove it because it's foolish. It does not make sense to human minds. But he goes on here. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the power in which the Jews want, the wisdom in which the Gentiles want. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is so offensive Not only for the Jews and the Gentiles that lived in Athens and Rome, but for us today because it looks at our lives and it says everything you bring to the table means nothing. And in fact, you being true to yourself and you making your life great is not the answer, it's the problem. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot get enough strength within yourself to earn the favor of this king. And you cannot be wise enough to understand his ways. The cross says, you must become a fool and you must become weak. 
The most offensive claim in Christianity is that God is creator, owner, and judge of every person on this planet. Every one of us stands before him guilty of sin. And the only way to be reconciled to him is through faith in Jesus, the crucified Savior and risen King. All who trust in Islam will experience everlasting life, but all who turn from his lordship will suffer everlasting death. Hell is real, church. Tim Keller wrote this. He says, If Jesus, the Lord of love and the author of grace, spoke about hell more often and more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anybody else in history, it must be a crucial truth for us today. Man, I hope any of that made sense. My mind is spinning... Well, what I see is a picture. There's a contrast here in, in Acts 17, and it's this. The cross produces two things. We look at it, and it burns in a zeal for God. Because we understand that even though it is the most offensive thing to our flesh, it is salvation for our eternity. And even though it might offend us because we have to lower ourselves, what it offers us is the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness. It is everything. So it burns in us zeal, like it did Paul when he walked among the culture of the day in the height of human wisdom. Or it burns in us offense for God, against God. And one of the things I just, man, I want you to wrestle through this week is where in your heart do you hold an offense against God? And is it valid? In the reality that you say Christ is Lord, in the reality that you say in coming to the cross, I am broken, even my understanding of good is broken, I need to be redeemed. So we come to the cross and we receive forgiveness and we repent and we're made into new creations. Where do we have the place to be offended? As Christians, we don't, it's a, it's, it's a contradiction. It cannot happen when we look at issues in this culture that weigh tension between this world and this kingdom. The thing that should weigh our Standing where we are on the matter is not our own political opinions or our emotional standpoints or these things within us that burn and say, well, this is how I feel. Therefore, this is what is right. It should be, is God being glorified? And is his right? Is, is what he say is right and good and holy being revealed in this world? Because church, God does not call us to right living because it is bad for us. He calls the world into holiness because it's salvation for us. It is good for us. So next week we're going to talk about what the revelation of God's love actually looks like in a culture where people are using the hashtag love wins everywhere I see. And in doing so, They're denying the very revelation which God has given them as love. Love is this, that I've redeemed you.
May we be a church that burns for zeal for our King. So what does that look like on a daily basis? I was having a conversation with Joel this week. It looks like compassion. When we look at the world and we look at these issues, we don't just stay, ah, it's not really concerning me. No, it concerns me because it concerns God. So therefore, I react in compassion. Jesus said himself, I see those. They're like a sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. And so we burn for the seal of God. And we act in our workplace. And we understand that, yes, the cross is offensive, but it is salvation. And for us to ever say, well, I don't want to offend anybody, that makes sense only if it's not true. As in, it makes sense for us not want to go tell people the gospel only if it's not true, only if God isn't reigning and that he's holy and we're condemned in sin and in the end there is eternal judgment, then yeah, don't go tell people. Don't live righteously. Don't well up with zeal for God. But if it is true, how do we have an option? I'm going to end with this. This is Jesus and Matthew. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father. Whoever finds his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. God, I pray that you would give us a zeal for your name. Lord, that when we look into the realities of your word, when we look into the realities of what you declare to be right and good, that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds and the understanding that you are reigning. And Lord, no matter what our opinions say, no matter what this culture does, God, that we stand with you, that we burn for you. Lord, I pray this week as we look into our hearts that you would Reveal the offenses that we hold against you because we haven't come to grips with the reality of the gospel. Lord, that you have called us to die. That you have called us to lower our wisdom. To become fools. To become weak. So that we can come out of ourselves and find the truth of who you truly are. Lord, I pray that that would just... be a constant thought on our head this week. Lord, and that we would feel your love, that we would feel you drawing us. God, and that because of our conviction, because of our being drawn into who you are, God, that you would be revealed accurately in this world as holy. That you would burn us with zeal for your name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys have kids, can you pick them up now? Uh, because I ran late. Stand and worship.
You guys have a blessed week. If you have any questions or need any prayers before right up here, they'd love to talk to you.